Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. And it ain't pretty. You found an illegal chinchilla ranch? You're good. Hey, sorry about breaking your stick. You know, when it's big like that, I just like to ride it rough and hard. <laughs> it's a nice ride. It's a, oh, sorry. <laughs> Give me those coats. Ah! Oh, Jason! Surprise! You always fall for the bad guy. And this guy must be really evil. You've never had trouble finding someone? I'm gonna teach you and your friends about Pan. Good evening, Charlie. Madison, is that you? Sorry, Charlie. I don't take orders from a speaker box anymore. I work for myself. Well, your boss sucks. This is it, you ready? Are you? You all fine, but you're crazy. Monday. I'll be a rescuer today. They have 50 armed men. I know, it hardly seems fair. We could really use Bosley's help on this one. I guess drive a race car. Heidi, O'Malley. Man, you ain't never heard of no black Irish. Black Irish. Who you think invented the Mac Rear? Lucky Charm, Sam Rock Shake. But I can't hardly walk. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're gonna do the sequel to Charlie's Angels, Charlie's Angels Full Throttle from 2003. The studio was Sony Pictures, release date was June 27, 2003. The running time, 106 minutes, with the rating of PG 13. The budget, 120 million, and the box office, for domestic, only took in $100 million, making it the 29th ranked movie of 2003. Now, the first movie made $125 million with a smaller budget, and that was likely why this was the last film in the series. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 42% rotten from a 185 reviews. The critics' consensus is eye candy for those who don't require a movie to have a plot or for it to make sense. Roger Ebert gives the film 2.5 out of 4 stars, and here's his review. I think it has more to do with mood than what's on the screen. Charlie's Angels Full Throttle is more or less the same movie as the original Charlie's Angels from 2000, and yet I feel more forgiving this time. Wow, did I hate the first one. He harkens back to his quote, A movie without a brain and three pretty little heads. I awarded it one half of a star. 
But what really was so reprehensible about that high-tech bimbo eruption? Imagine a swimsuit issue crossed with an explosion at the special effects lab and you've got it. <laughs> Maybe I was indignant because people were going to spend their money on this instead of going to better movies that were undoubtedly more edifying for them. But if people wanted to be edified every time they went to the movies, Hollywood would be out of business. Charlie's Angels Full Throttle is not a funny movie, despite a few good one-liners, as when Bernie Mac explains that the Black Irish invented the McRib. It is not an exciting movie, because there is no way to genuinely care about what's happening, and it doesn't make much sense anyway. It's not a sexy movie, even though it stars four sexy women, because you just can't get aroused by the sight of three babes running towards you in slow motion with an explosion in the background. I've tried it. So what is it? Harmless, brainless, good-natured fun. Leaving full throttle, I realized I did not hate or despise the movie, and so during a long and thoughtful walk along the Chicago River, I decided that I sort of liked the movie because of the high spirits of the women involved. Say what you will, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, Lucy Liu, and Demi Moore were manifestly having fun while they made this movie. They're given outrageous characters to play, an astonishing wardrobe, especially considering the fact that they go everywhere without suitcases, remarkable superpowers, and lots of close-ups in which they are just gorgeous when they smile. It's a form of play for them to be female James Bonds, just as male actors all like to be in westerns because you get to ride a horse and shoot up saloons. There is a scene where the three angels discuss what Dylan Sanders was named before she went into the witness protection program. It turns out she was named Helen Zass. Now there's a name to go in the books with Norma Stitz. <laughs> Natalie and Alex kid her mercilessly about her name, and as Lou comes up with the wicked puns, you almost get the impression she's thinking them up herself. And that's the end of Ebert's review. Yeah, Ebert pretty much summed up everything. I own the movie because it is indeed fun and mindless, not because it's a cinematic gem. Ultimately, it's entertaining, and when the film is over, I don't feel like I've been put through the ringer. Really, there's a type of movie for everyone. There's a type of genre for everyone. For example, I finally saw Parasite and thought it was really well done and different from mo than most movies, but I really have no desire to ever watch it again. It's just not that type of film for me. Now, Full Throttle is not even in the same league quality-wise to Parasite, and I know that, but that's not the point. I personally find myself re-watching action and comedy films more often than heavy dramas. All right, the main cast. Now, I covered the three main actresses in the first Charlie's Angels episode, so I won't repeat that, but I'll cover the films they made between the first and second Angels films. So Cameron Diaz plays Natalie, and she voiced Princess Fiona in the first Shrek film and subsequent sequel. She was in Vanilla Sky with Tom Cruise. The sweetest thing. It was hilarious with Christina Applegate and Selma Blair, and she was also in Gangs in New York. And now... Cameron Diaz is retired. She just wanted to walk away from Hollywood. So there you go. Enjoy her past films. Drew Barrymore plays Dylan. Barrymore wasn't as busy film-wise as Diaz because she filled, she appeared in a few small roles in Donnie Darko, Freddie Got Fingered, who she was dating Tom Green at the time, and Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Her only starring role was in the Penny Marshall film Riding in Cars with Boys. Lucy Liu plays Alex, and Liu appeared mostly in cameos for TV shows, but did have a larger role in 2002 Cypher and a small role in the same year in the film Chicago. The biggest change to the film, of course, is Bernie Mac, who takes on the role of Bosley. Now, in the first episode of For Charlie's Angels, I mentioned how much Bill Murray had problems on the set, and especially with Lucy Liu, so it was no surprise when he was replaced for the sequel. 
As enjoyable as Bill Murray is always on screen and in that first film, Bernie Mac actually was a better all-around fit for the Bosley character and likely should have been the original Bosley from the beginning. So Mac first started as a stand-up comic and would appear in smaller roles on films starting in the early 1990s. He continued to get bigger and bigger roles, with arguably his biggest role prior to Bosley being Frank Catton in the remake of Ocean's Eleven in 2001. But sadly, Mac died of pneumonia in 2008 at the age of 50. There are some great co-stars in this film. Uh, most of them were in the first film, like Crispin Glover, he returns as the Thin Man, Justin Theroux makes his debut, Demi Moore makes her debut, Matt LeBlanc returns, Luke Wilson returns, and we get to see Shia LaBeouf. The director is McGee, and as I mentioned in the first episode, McGee started as a music video director prior to Charlie's Angels. Between the first film and the sequel, he directed a video documentary for Cypress Hill, and he was the executive producer on the short-lived TV series Fast Lane with Peter Fascinelli, Bill Bellamy, and Tiffany Amber Thiessen. All right, let's get into the making of the film. So this time, Cameron Diaz, Drew Barrymore, and Lucy Wu were ready for all the action stunts, as opposed to the first movie. So they were more comfortable and better condition and did almost all of their own stunts. Chung Yang Yuan was back as the stunt coordinator for Full Throttle, and this is why most of the action looks similar to the first film. A lot of the stunts were done with wires, hence a lot of the flying kicks and the flip scenes. But Full Throttle is a bit grittier than the first film, like with the Seamus character played by Justin Theroux, along with Demi Moore. McGee essentially shot a rated R film and then edited it down to PG-13, which was all by design. The writers wrote the script assuming that Diaz, Barrymore, and Lou would return, but they also had alternate versions in case one of them did not return. The title of the film originally sort of had a reloaded theme, or a halo for the rings angle. But Full Throttle was picked after some audience surveys, as always is. Melissa McCarthy was back in the film. She had a cameo because she was one. She was a friend with one of the writers, but she was cut out. Though you can see her with Bernie Mac in the end credits. Drew Barrymore was against the Angels using guns, as the precedent was set in the first film. And this is why the dichotomy of with the rogue angel being Madison, that's Demi Moore, She's kind of a double-barreled, gun-toting villain, while the angels do not use weapons like that. All right, let's get into the film. So the movie starts in northern Mongolia, and we see a crate being taken to a basement in some dirty establishment. I think it's a bar. And once the crate is dropped off, four screws simultaneously pour out as Alex, that's Lucy Liu, appears out of the crate from being packed in. According to the writers, the original location in mind was Venezuela, but the scene itself was basically the same. Not that the location ever matters since it was all done on the Sony soundstage. Upstairs in the bar, Dylan, Drew Barrymore, is having a drinking contest with one of the degenerate locals. In the midst of all this, she steals the keys off a guard. Then Natalie, Cameron Diaz, appears wearing all white fur with her normal charismatic attitude and decides to ride the mechanical bull, or mechanical yak, <laughs> to grab the attention from the crowd. The writers always wanted snow scenes in both films, but could never make it happen, and Cameron's entrance is the closest thing to snow we get. The Angel's mission is to save a hostage, a U.S. Marshal named Ray Marshall, played by Robert Patrick. Alex takes out the guards and Dylan assists as Natalie keeps everyone distracted until magically everyone notices that Ray is being taken away. The original draft had a senator being saved instead of a U.S. Marshal. And it would have had to have been someone super famous like Sean Connery or Roger Moore or Tom Cruise that they say, but it didn't happen because they aren't Austin Powers. 
Essentially, this is an excuse for some action sequences, as the now played out super slow motion flips, kicks, and punches are in full display in this film. At the time, these tricks didn't seem as played out. However, now it just comes off as lazy and boring, especially in the superhero films. That being said, I did at the time, and, and still a little bit now, have fun watching this version of The Angels, so I kind of let it slide for the most part. The angels eventually escape by stealing a truck. They play chicken with opposing tanks and jump out of the truck off a bridge and magically land on a giant military-style helicopter. Would you expect anything less? I also think that the A-Team in their movie adaptation did the same thing. So then we get the introduction to the girls and a quick montage of how they grew up before becoming agents. The first movie did essentially the same thing. This time we see Natalie as a bumbling high school mascot, Alex as a world-class gymnast, and Dylan in her full David Bowie Ziggy Stardust makeup as she is a wrestler named Lady Insane. Alex is also a world-class chess player. Dylan, of course, again is a rocker chick driving monster trucks as Motley Crue's Looks That Kill plays in the background and Natalie delivers a newborn calf on a farm. We then see them all together doing roller derby and a plethora of other stunts. It's a fun scene and a good opening. Totally unlike the 2019 remake, which took itself way too seriously. In any case, this quick montage was incredibly expensive for the producers, especially since every quick scene took a day to film. So we get a cameo from none other than Bruce Willis, which is interesting considering at this point he'd been divorced from Demi Moore for a few years. But by all accounts, they remained friendly and probably never even saw each other while filming. Like the U.S. Marshal the Angels saved, the common theme behind their kidnapping is stealing their wedding rings. Willis's ring is taken off his finger before he is shot and killed. Supposedly Willis agreed to appear in the movie when Cameron Diaz did a PSA for one of his charities. We then get the obligatory dance scene with Cameron Diaz as she dances along with MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This. I am certainly not going to complain about this at all. However, you can definitely see where the filmmakers decided not to deviate from the same premises that worked in the first film. It's sort of a weird position to be in as a filmmaker, much like music artists. You can keep a similar vibe with subsequent albums, but you do risk being redundant and not necessarily creative. But it's about making money at the end of the day. In this case, I really don't think it matters since Charlie's Angels isn't supposed to be award-winning stuff. I suppose the difference in this dance scene is that all three girls are involved, which is fun. It's not just Cameron Diaz. Plus, Drew Barrymore is wearing an ACDC shirt. If she picks the shirts, I'm impressed because they're all great band shirts. Prior scenes had her in a Rolling Stone shirt, and I'll mention the others as we go. We discover that Pete, Luke Wilson, and Natalie are moving in together, and the girls are helping them unpack. Also returning is Jason, Matt LeBlanc, Alex's boyfriend from the first movie, though they are on a timeout, according to Alex. As I mentioned earlier, their only real change from the first film is Bosley, now played by Bernie Mac. Now, how did they get around this by changing Bill Murray? They eliminated his character of John Bosley, and Mac plays Jimmy Bosley, the adopted brother, because why not? For me, Bernie Mac is a better Bosley for this sort of film, as he's got more of a shticky sense of humor with his mannerisms and one-liners compared to Bill Murray. Now, the writers had ideas of where Bill Murray was participating on Survivor or always on location in the Galapagos Islands, but it just didn't happen. There was another idea to have famous actresses of the era shown as ex-angels, like Jodie Foster, but that didn't happen either. We discovered that the Angels' latest mission involves the Witness Protection Program, and the reason that the rings had been stolen prior was that each ring has an encryption, which when placed together gives the identities of the witnesses in the program. 
The Angel's job is to find out who is behind the coup and retrieve the rings before the list of names are sold to the underworld. There's your plot. Their first undercover mission is at a crime scene. Alex is an evidence recovery specialist, Dylan, a crime scene photographer, and Natalie, a CSI team leader with a female mullet wig. And Bosley's a coroner, which he is less than thrilled about as he doesn't want to be around dead bodies. The evidence suggests a surfer may have committed the crime. So it's off to the beach for the gals and Bosley. But before that, Alex is visited by her father, played by John Cleese, and Dylan is now wearing an awesome Judas Priest shirt, which I think is from the Screaming for Vengeance era, as it's Rob Halford on his patented Harley Davidson, as a lighted circle kind of embosses him. Again, love Drew Barrymore's band shirts in this film. All right, now it's beach time, where you not only get Cameron Diaz in a bikini, but also Demi Moore. That's not a bad thing at all. Now, Drew and Lucy are undercover as hot dog on a stick workers, and we discover that Madison, Demi Moore, was an ex-angel. Wait a second. Boss. There's a waxer in your six. Is that you, Lord? Get in there and see if he's using pineapple sex wax. Dylan, check it out. I got sand all in my ass. I can't hardly walk. Just blend in. Be cool, boss. Got the wax? Great job, boss. Is that great? Huh? It's great. Yeah. It's great. Yes, sir. Suspect four eliminated. What's up, Angel? Madison Lee? Natalie Cook? Oh, my God. How did you know? I get the newsletter. Of course. <laughs> Oh, God, I've heard so many stories about you. You're my favorite angel. She won the Nobel Prize in astrophysics for her research on flying mammals. And predicted Carmine DeSoto's every move by using the Cosmo Bedside Astrologer. I also set the clock on Charlie's VCRs. And she invented the Muller mic. Dylan and Alex. Yeah. <laughs> God, how I miss stakeouts. No, are they the best? Lay my Mugel! <laughs> oh, only one waxer left. Wait a second. Subpatella scar, left knee. Check it out. Brown shorts, red board, 11 o'clock. What do you think? Yummy? It's my thought. Case closed, Nat, move in. Dylan thinks he's hot. What do you mean? You always fall for the bad guy. Then this guy must be really evil. Hey, you know what? You should come by and see the new agency. It's beautiful. Maybe I will. Tell Charlie hello for me when you see him. The Angels get a lead on a surfer that fits a description, and their next undercover job has them at a motocross while White Zombies Thunder Kiss 65 plays. It's a good choice initially, but then the scene is bogged down with super slow motion tricks. Though we do get a cameo from the singer Pink, because she's playing the local track Bookie, and the actual race has Prodigy's Firestar playing in the background. McGee is a bigger motocross guy, which is why this scene was included. 
Also, Pink was in the film due to her connection with her then-boyfriend, Carrie Hart, who was a professional motocrosser. She has now been married to Hart since 2006. We get another returning character as the Thin Man. Crispin Glover returns and keeps up his creepy ways by stealing a lock of Dylan's hair. One of the racers is a young Shia LaBeouf as Max. Now, we discover from this motocross scene that Dylan was in the witness protection program herself prior to becoming an angel. Her birth name, as Ebert mentioned in his review, was Helen Zass. Yes, I laughed as well. They gave me a call. Helen Zass? Yeah. That's your name? Yeah. Helen Zass. So, uh, where does that where does that name come from originally? Is that uh, Australian? Yeah. Oh my God, you must have been the butt of every joke. Did you drive an Aston Martin? Alex, we're being asinine. Yes, yes, you are. Don't worry, Dylan. We're still going to be your best butties. <laughs> now, angels, a rose by any other name still smells as sweet. Thank you, Charlie. It's really not that funny. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> Boss, can I get a ruling on this one? You sure can. You know what, personally? I'm not interested in Helen's ass. I'm more concerned about yours. No matter what, you're still going to be our Dylan. Thank you, Boss. You're welcome. We get a flashback scene of eight years prior as Dylan talks about her days of being in love with heavy metal music and bad boys as she drives around listening to Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer and a Trans Am. It's a funny scene as she yells, I would die for you to her boyfriend. (laughs) Unfortunately, her boyfriend is Seamus O'Grady and he kills a guy in front of her and she had to put him away. This is Justin Thoreau. Turns out he was part of the Irish mob and because of it, Dylan had to go into the witness protection. So the song Living on a Prayer, of course, from Bon Jovi was almost not used in the film since the rights of the song were too expensive. So Drew Barrymore called John Bon Jovi and told him how much he loved the song and how important it was to her that it be in the scene, and Bon Jovi found a loophole to enable them to use the song. All right, now Seamus is out of prison, and he's looking for revenge on Helen's ass. I mean, Dylan. So Max, the the kid, the motocross kid, had testified against O'Grady, which is why Max is being targeted now. So the plot is, yeah, it's getting a little convoluted, but hey, that's what I'm here for, to straighten it all out. And honestly, for these types of movies, you can throw the plot out of the window anyway. Next, the angels go undercover at an orphanage, and they play nuns. And we find out more about the infamous Thin Man. And the head nun, Mother Superior, is played by none other than Carrie Fisher. I must say, they did a great job with the cameos in this film. Look at those knockers! Boys! Mother Superior will see you now. Mother, do you recognize this man? Of course I know who he is. We called him Anthony, after Saint Anthony of Padua, healer of the mute. Please, come forward. Please, girls. But his real name like so much about it, was a mystery. He came to us when he was seven. He was found wandering in the hills, living off roots and insects. We believe his family was part of a Romanian circus troupe who died in a terrible fire. Although the doctors could find nothing physically wrong with him, he never spoke a word. And there were other idiosyncrasies He was a painfully shy child until it came time for his monthly haircut. 
One morning, he was simply gone. The thin man was protecting Max. Hi. So you're saying this man is the sole benefactor of your orphanage? Yes. He really is an angel. Mother, have you had contact with him since? Well, not really that much, except for the odd haircut now and then. <laughs> but he does send gifts, like this morning. Emmer's car. That is a nice ride. Original 1967 numbers matching GTO. Birds. I know. Bird poo. What order did you girls say you were from again? Loris Californicus. <laughs> California gull. Fecal matter consists mostly of scaly clinkosorm. Sardines that fed on large brown algae, I'd say. There's also traces of tanker fuel and stormwater runoff as well. Seagull, tanker, stormwater. Hmm. San Pedro Harbor. I believe the Fisher scene is a nod to the Blues Brothers, which he was also in, and the Penguin, who was played by Kathleen Freeman in the film. Fisher, of course, had the famous scenes where she was always trying to kill the Blues Brothers. Also, the orphanage was shot at the Playboy Mansion. Again, this movie pretty much follows the same format as the first film. Put the angels in different undercover action scenes where they get to dress up into different outfits, and before you know it, you have a somewhat cohesive film. Next, the angels are dancers at a seedy burlesque joint. They dance to an updated version of the Pink Panther theme. You also get a cameo by Chris Pontius from Jackass, who is part of the crowd. The main reason they are undercover is to investigate the O'Grady shipyard. This leads to a funny scene with Bosley. Heidi, O'Malley. Top of the morning to you. <laughs> you know, you, you just don't look much like any party I've ever seen before. Man, you ain't never heard of no black Irish. Black Irish? That's right. Who do you think invented the Mac Rear? Lucky Charms. Huh? Sarah Roxy. That's ours. Give me your papers. What? Your papers. Let me tell you something. You got a whole bunch of nerd asking about my dog on papers. My family suffered, man, for lack of potatoes, foot and mouth disease, canker sores, circumcision. Circumcision? That's right. My wife just had a set of twins, man. They both left the car. Left the car. Get a whip. Irish spring. And you don't believe that you can wipe your ass with a four-leaf cloak. Forget it! Alright, so the angels find two stolen rings at the shipyard. However, this leads to a showdown between Seamus and Dylan. And in the background, Natalie and Alex are fighting off the rest of the crew. This is probably the most elaborate fight action scene of the film. And again, they reuse the song Firestarter playing throughout the scene. I enjoy this scene actually a lot because it seems that McGee tempered down the slow motion a bit as well. There's even a nod to Drew's past films as you get a Firestarter-esque demolition, which of course was the Stephen King adaptation that she starred in as a kid. In the meantime, Max is being guarded in the safest place possible to avoid an Irish gang, according to Bosley, and that is South Central Los Angeles. Hot damn it, I know who did it. Colonel Mustard in the dining no. room with a lead pipe. Colonel Mustard. Give me that, big fella. Colonel Mustard. I, did, I said Colonel Mustard in the dining room with a lead pipe. Let's go ahead and look in okay. there, Okay, no, won't you look in there. <laughs> Colonel Mustard. Okay, Colonel Mustard. That's right. Colonel Mustard. <laughs> Colonel Mustard. <laughs> it's Professor Plum in the conservatory with the candlestick. Oh! 
That's right. You got it right. How the hell do you know that? You took him one just like him a long time ago. Remember? Yeah, mama. I remember. You gave my room away. In the last scene, you see Bill Murray's framed picture as Bosley's mom references that they took him into their house as well. Now, the original game that they were playing was going to be Jenga, but Clue is much better, and that's what they went with. Alex's dad still has no idea what she does for a living, so Jason tells him about Charlie. Of course, this is a standard Three's Company type of mix-up, and double entendre as John Cleese thinks Alex is a prostitute and that Charlie is her pimp. Is a wild cat. I mean, she gives as good as she gets. Huh? Alex! Hey! Jason! Daddy, what are you doing here, Jason? I was just explaining to your father here all about Charlie. Charlie? Huh? Daddy. Sorry, Alex, I know. I'm so sorry, Daddy, that I didn't tell you. I didn't think you'd approve, and I didn't want to disappoint you. I know how you wanted me to be a neurosurgeon. But I've discovered a whole new way to help people that makes me feel so alive. Whatever makes you happy. <laughs> oh, I am so relieved. It's just been killing me, you not knowing all these years. I, Daddy, Natalie, Dylan, and I are a team. And we just took on 12 sailors. can't even imagine the positions we get ourselves into. <laughs> Daddy, I wish you could watch us work. You'd be so proud. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to take a shower because I am covered in what <laughs> you can only imagine what. And then when I get back, I'm going to give you all blow by blow. Well, it's been at least 10 minutes since Cameron Diaz has danced, so it's on to Pete's high school reunion, and of course she has a completely choreographed dance routine with all of the guests. <laughs> the next day, Bosley, Natalie, and Alex discover that Dylan has left the group to protect them from being hurt by the O'Grady's. Normally, I don't give away plot points, but this is Charlie's Angels after all. Come on. The good guys, er, women win and the bad guys lose. In any case, we discovered that the U.S. Marshals from the beginning that the Angels saved was in on the plot to steal the rings the whole time. This leads to a fun scene as Natalie and Alex follow him to get back the rings and Alex is on a flat motorized scooter of sorts as she lays flat on her back. In the meantime, Dylan is now in Mexico and runs into Kelly Garrett, one of the original Angels from the TV series and played by the still very attractive Jacqueline Smith. This is a ghost sort of scene, and Kelly disappears in thin air, but her purpose was to get Dylan back with Natalie and Alex. Kelly Garrett. Hello, Dylan. Don't you have a case to solve? Well, I tried to outrun my past, but it caught up with me yesterday, and I put my friends in danger. You're in more danger now without you. Natalie and Alex are going to replace me with someone great. A real angel. Not someone who's pretending to be something she's not. Your past is what makes you who you are, Dylan. Don't forget that Charlie chose you for a reason. Angels are like diamonds. They can't be made. You have to find them. Each one is unique. Sometimes we search too hard for answers that are right in front of us.
Anyway, you can guess what this pep talk does for Dylan. Also, no surprise, the leader of the ring heist all along was Demi Moore, and we finally get a showdown between her and the Angels with about 30 minutes to go in the film. Again, it, this is the same type of plot twist like in the first film. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Hello, Angels. Madison Lee. Why? Why be an angel when I can play God? Looks like one of the three amigos has gone adios. Hola. Welcome back, Dylan. You're such a typical rebellious Pisces. Always out to prove how tough and independent you are and you couldn't even make it one day on your own, could you? Someone reminded me that every angel is unique. And I knew it was you. Who else has contacts in Mongolia? Could hack the Halo failsafe and hire a surfer as an assassin. The same astrological phenom who would refer to a motocross rider with a lion on his helmet as Leo. Very well done. Very impressive, really. I mean, you've got it all figured out. And now I'm gonna really enjoy knocking those halos right off your heads. But you're an angel. No, you just don't get it. I don't take orders from a speaker box anymore. I work for myself. Well, your boss sucks. Ah, <laughs> the angel's ass kicking pose. I have to admit, seeing the three of you like that does give me this little twinge of nostalgia for the old days. Back then, it was a little bit different. You see, when I was an angel, we used guns. Sorry, Charlie. It's funny. I think even the writers realize how these films aren't about the plot, and it's all about the action and the beauty of the angels. So this last scene was just a 30-second wrap-up, and it's on to the action. This doesn't bother me at all. Why should it even take itself seriously? Anyway, the remainder of the film is the Angels attempting to take out Madison. Demi Moore plays the role of the main villain well, and it makes you wonder why she wasn't in the film a bit more. But maybe that's why it works so well. Alright, so how does the movie hold up to the original? Well, the surprises aren't there. It's essentially a repeat of what worked well in the first film. And frankly, there's nothing wrong with that. The audience gets exactly what they were looking for. And with the high prices going to a movie theater, you might as well know exactly what you're paying for. Otherwise, just watch it at home. At the end, you do hear a cover version of Elton John's Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, which is played by Nickelback. And that's not that interesting on the surface, but what is interesting is the guitar solo comes from none other than Pantera's guitarist, Dimebag Daryl. What a combo. There's a final after credit scene where the angels are walking through the grass of the mansion where the sprinklers go off and Cameron Diaz's shoes are completely broken in this scene, which is kind of funny to watch. 
All right, the fun facts. Jamie Foxx was originally in talks to play Jimmy Bosley. Will Smith was also considered for the role of Jimmy as well, but of course it went to Bernie Mac. Courtney Love was offered the role of Madison Lee, but turned it down, and Joan Cusack was considered also for the role of Madison. Tom Hanks was considered for the role of Seamus O'Grady. I just don't see that one happening. He never plays a bad guy. A third and fourth installment was initially planned to go into production, but after the box office disappointment for this film, Sony canceled plans for all future sequels, and the reboot from 2019 did not go well at all, as I mentioned earlier. All right, we do have a guest to talk about Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, and it's none other than Stephen Michael from the Great Grown Up Rock Podcast. We discuss this film, and then I will be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD collection. All right, we're back with Stephen Michael, of course, from the Growing Up Rock Podcast. How you doing, Stephen? What's going on, my friend Brian Davis? Well, I don't know if you're doing as good as as the Angels, but we're gonna have to find out about uh, your history with Charlie's Angels. So first, did you enjoy the the '70s TV show? Like, did you did you catch those on reruns, or are you old enough to remember when it was actually on television? I do absolutely remember when it was on TV and mm-hmm. to ask somebody of my age whether I enjoyed it, <laughs> for God's sake, Spare Fawcett was in it. Of course <laughs> I enjoyed it. <laughs> well, it's funny. My, my mom, I found this just last year, actually. My mom actually bought my dad the, the famous Farrah Fawcett poster for either his birthday or whatever. So he had that up in, the, I think, the garage or whatever. <laughs> so, yes, that was an iconic show. Do you, uh, When's the last time you actually wa- like went back and actually watched the, the original show? I don't know about that. Probably, I don't think I ever took advantage of, like, the Nickelodeons or, or whatever the... Um, there was one uh, TV channel on cable that was basically a nostalgia channel where it was playing all the old shows. So I can't actually say when I last watched uh, the original thing, but I'm guessing it was probably pretty cheesy if you went back and watched it today, that is. Definitely, but I actually think uh, the movie, and we'll get into the movie, kind of had that same kind of fun angle to it obviously the special effects are way better and the actions better but i think the the personality of the angels i think is is definitely nostalgic to um the the tv show as opposed to we can maybe eventually talk about it the the reboot that just happened where they got way too serious for their own good um so did you we're going to talk about the sequel full throttle did you actually see the the first film uh, from 2000 i saw them both yeah okay how did how did you like the first one so here was my first thought. Um, you're familiar with Michael Bay flicks, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so a lot of people, they either hate Bay or they love him. They hate because um, he's all about effects, no no plot. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the thing I've heard about Michael Bay flicks. Yep. Here's one of the things that I like about Michael Bay flicks, and I'll tell you how this comes into play with the Charlie's Angels things. Michael Bay has a way of shooting a movie, um, and the colors and the way that it looks, looks amazing. It just has this really great tone and color and i don't know any other way to explain it Mm. i don't know whether it's some sort of effect they use on the film when they shoot it but it looks incredible mcg did the exact same thing a different look but the exact same thing with both the charlie's angels 
flicks that he shot. It had this particular look to it that looked amazing. The colors and the effects and the way it was shot, I just thought was beautiful. And I know that's kind of a weird thing to focus in on. I'm not a director. I'm not a movie maker. I don't, you know, it's just, it's one of the things that caught my eye and drew me into these uh, films. So, yeah, I mean, I just I wanted to point that out because that's the first thing that I thought of when I think about these movies. Mm-hmm. Well, that totally makes sense because, yeah, I mean, for, for a film like this, yeah, the the action is forefront. So to to film it really well and have those kind of that um, those bright colors and and have it visually stunning, it totally makes sense. I think that's probably where they spent most of the budget and the focus on that. That's a good call. Uh, okay, so we get into the film. The first one, of course, had. Uh, Bill Murray as Bosley. Uh, famously, he did not get along with Lucy Liu, and uh, he did not come back, even though he's kind of referenced in, in the sequel. How did you, comparing Bernie Mac to Bill Murray, which Bosley did you like better? You know, that's a tough one. I think they both bring something to the table. I understand Bill Murray's really tough individual to work with as a whole. Mm-hmm. I've heard that uh, through various films of uh, that he's done over the years. I love Bill Murray because, you know, Bill Murray, he's yeah, awesome. Exactly. <laughs> um, so there were, uh, I, I can't really necessarily say I like one better than another. I think they both bought something to it and it was a different flavor because I think that Bernie is much more of a, um, he's a straightforward comedian as opposed to Bill Murray. Bill Murray is kind of, um, he, drops these little hidden comedic bombs here and there. You know what I mean? Sure. Sure. Yeah. We're, yeah. I mean, Bernie came from the stand up, uh, you know, background. And so, yeah, you're exactly, exactly. So maybe, uh, Mur- Bill Murray's a little bit more nuanced with his, with his comedy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't want to say Bill Murray. You have to think about his comedy a little bit more than, uh, Bernie Mac, no, but, no. Mm-hmm. but it is kind of what I'm saying is that Bernie Mac is just a little bit more out front with his stuff, you know? Sure. No, that's totally valid. Now for the villains, the villains are interesting in this. Of course you, you have uh, Demi Moore, who's not the obvious villain at first, but then you have Justin Thoreau and one 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 scene that you guys might appreciate because of course you're you're from the Grown Up Rock podcast is the flashback scene with Drew Barrymore who by the way loves her her 80s metal yeah. uh, some d- amazing shirts here but when uh, they're listening to uh, Living on a Prayer <laughs> she's like yelling at, at at the Justin Thoreau uh, character that she I will die for you and then all of a sudden something bad happens but uh, how did you feel about that stuff Yeah I love that I I love the uh, uh, nostalgia trip uh, yeah. that you get out of uh, Drew Barrymore's character. I think that's great. And and even with uh, Cameron Diaz, you know, she has some of those uh, throwback um, flashbacks and stuff like mm-hmm. that, which is very nostalgic. And and for somebody of my age, you know, I, I uh, connected with both of those eras uh, nostalgia wise. So I love it, you know. Yeah. So the villain wise, how do, how do you think uh, Moore and Thoreau pro- pulled off the villains? I think it was OK. I, I much more enjoyed the quirkiness of frickin' uh, George McFly on the first oh, one. Crispin Glover. Yeah, who's Crispin, in this one, too? 
Yeah, Crispin Glover is just, he's a freak, man. I don't know any other way to do it. And uh, I don't know whether it's a full character or whether he just is a freak in real life. I, I don't know. I haven't read one way or another, but uh, I, I got to love Crispin Glover, man. So awesome. Well, yeah, so he's called the Thin Man, and he's like super pasty white with this kind of uh, very kind of slick hair, and he's always... Uh, stealing people's hair like, and then screaming after after smelling uh-huh. it is, yeah it's so weird so other things i mean we could get in the plot but the the plot's really nothing so do you did you actually see this in the theater or was this like okay i'm gonna i, I know what i'm getting so i don't mind spending the money in the theater or you're like i'll just wait till it's on you know cable or or you know rental i think i probably saw full throttle uh on rental Uh, I don't think I saw that in the theater, Uh, but I will go on record and say that I did enjoy the first one. And you know what? Cameron Diaz, Drew Barrymore and Lucy Liu. uh, It's 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 nice eye candy. You know what I'm saying? Oh, sure. It goes back to that's that's the you know, they used to call it jiggle TV uh, in the 70s. And that's that's exactly what the angels were. Um and they be all became icons. That's a, that's the thing. And and uh, of the three in the movie, who is your favorite angel? Man, that's hard. But I'm gonna go somewhere in between uh, Diaz and Barrymore because there's things I liked about both of their characters. I liked some of the um, backstory rebel feel of Drew Barrymore, but I also loved some of the geekiness of uh, Cameron Diaz uh, mm-hmm. character, you know? So though the two, those two resonated with me most, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I, I love, I mean, I'm a sucker for Drew Barrymore because uh, ever since the eighties, I think, I just think she, she always translates well on screen, but yeah, it's so funny how they're always trying to get Cameron Diaz to dance. They always find an excuse for her to dance. And she likes it too. Obviously, yeah, she totally likes it. I mean, going back to the mask with Jim Carrey, she was dancing in that too. Yeah, I think she really likes to uh, have a good time and it's fun and it comes off on screen as fun. And, uh, you know, it's here's the thing with with both these Charlie's Angels movies. uh, And I'll wait till you ask me to pass judgment. But overall, (laughs) I think you have to go into these movies willing to um, suspend disbelief and just go to have a good time. You know what I mean? If you try to take either one of these movies too seriously, you're going to end up hating it. And that's I really don't think that was the overall goal of these flicks. Right. And that's exactly why they're in my collection. I know I can put them on at any time. And I don't necessarily have to be have my full attention on them and I'm not going to miss anything and I'm, it's still going to be enjoyable. And and that's also a testament not only to like how the how it looks, you know, visually, as you mentioned, but really the, the three actresses and, and the supporting cast, because they are likable enough to where um, it doesn't matter, matter where, where you come into the movie, you're going to enjoy it. And both I'll say I'll say this, both movies um, have done a good job at putting together uh, a nice, varied um, soundtrack. And, you know, True. 
at Grown Up Rock, we're all about the music. So, well, actually, yeah, that you brought up a good point. Let's talk about the music. So, what what songs do you remember st- uh, stand out for you, at least on the sequel? Because I remember Aerosmith, I believe, was on the first one. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I don't have the soundtrack to the first one in front of me, but I'm looking at the soundtrack to this one. And mm-hmm. one of the movies that, or I'm sorry, one of the songs that stood out for me was Pink's Feel Good Time. Mm. Uh, I'm a big Pink fan. I like Pink a lot and, uh, got some really catchy tunes. And one thing that I didn't really know about Feel Good Time, Pink didn't write the song, mm. um, but guess who does have writing credits on this song? I don't know. Beck. Uh, ah. Beck Hansen, for one. Yeah. And the second name that you may or may not recognize if you're a classic rock person is Jay Ferguson. You know who Jay Ferguson I, is? I don't. Jay Ferguson is um, had a huge hit. Um, oh, Thunder Island? Thunder Island. Mm. That was it. Jay Jay Ferguson uh, had a huge hit with Thunder Island. Ah, okay, yeah, back in the seventies. Yep. Yes. Ah, Spirit. Oh, he was in Spirit. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Big so influence on he, that one. He, uh, right. So, how weird is it to have a writing credit on Feel Good Time with Beck Hansen? Yeah, and then having Pink sing it. And speaking of Pink, she does have a cameo with her then, I guess, husband slash boy, you know, boyfriend husband, um, the the motorcyclist, so uh, Corey Hart. And I think they're still actually, oh, I know they've been, yeah. yeah, I think they're actually still together. They've been back and forth and I think they may have even gotten divorced at one time and got back together, but I think they're actually still together. Oh, there you go. And, and that, that's definitely where the action comes in. Cause, uh, Shia LaBeouf plays one of the kid, uh, motorcyclists and, and, uh, dirt bikers. So that's, uh, yeah, that was a fun scene as well. Yeah, and then it's got, you know, it's got Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, Elton John, Rebel Rebel, uh, David Bowie. Of course, we talked about it earlier with Living on a Prayer. So -hmm. it's got some really good stuff on there, Um, a little bit of something for everybody. And they did the same exact thing on the first uh, soundtrack as well. So I I always love it uh, when there's a great accompanying soundtrack uh, within the movie, you know? Yeah. And then uh, you can't touch us when all three of them are, are kind of doing the <laughs> hammer dance in the beginning. And that's, a, that was a lot of fun. And actually this was obviously a high budget movie. And I think a lot of it might've gone not only the special effects, but the soundtrack. Cause some of these are really popular songs. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and you know, I like it. I respect it when people have good soundtracks, but it's not just, uh, the soundtrack isn't separate from the movie. Like I like it when they use some of the music on the soundtrack within the movie. Exactly. Exactly. Like they, they make it part of the movie now. Okay. So we'll, we'll kind of skip ahead. Did you actually see the reboot? I believe it came out last year as we're recording this. I think it came out in 2019 with uh, Kristen Stewart. Yeah, so I actually wasted two and a half hours of my time on a flight. Uh, luckily, it was free because it was part of the movie packages on the flight. Okay. And uh, I, I don't know. I think I was coming from the West Coast, so it was a good uh, three and a half hour ride. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw that that was part of it. So, yes, I did watch the new one. And I didn't get it. I was, like, really, really disappointed because – it just, I mean, they didn't even try to continue any of the spirit from those first uh, two reboots. And mm-hmm. yeah, it, it wasn't for me. 
So I haven't seen it, uh, but from what I read, it was just it was trying to be a little bit too serious for its own good, which is probably the exact opposite you want to go with these types of movies. So I I don't know. How, how did you feel about like the, at least the tone of the film? Uh, so I don't know about that. That wouldn't be my first critique. Here's okay. what my first critique is. My first critique is that I did not connect with any of the three. I didn't mm. connect with any of them. Um, uh, Kristen Stewart, who was it? It was Kristen Stewart. Who else was in that? I don't even remember. I just, that was the main one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it was Kristen Stewart and a couple others who obviously nobody can even remember, including myself. And I watched right. it. But, you know, you got to connect with the, with the angels in yeah. some way, shape or form. And it wasn't that, oh, well, you know, she's not attractive or something like that. It wasn't that. I don't know. I just didn't connect with it. It wasn't as much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, was it? I'm trying to think. Was it a horrible movie? I don't know if it was a horrible movie. I would have to watch it again because, again, I was watching it on a flight. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I just remember thinking this is not near as much fun as the first two. Right. That's, that's what, that was the first thing that I thought of. I didn't connect to the three that were the new ones that were doing the thing. I don't remember the soundtrack at all, Mm. uh, which doesn't necessarily mean that it didn't have anything good in it. I just don't remember it. Um, and, and okay. And here's the other thing I've had way longer to digest the first two Charlie's right. angels. I've watched it over and over. And like you said, it's one of those flicks that ends up on cable every other day Sure, and it sucks me in like late at night, if I'm going to bed or something and I just want something on in the background mm-hmm. and I see that that's on, I'll put that on because, you know, I know basically the whole movie, so it doesn't matter uh, to me, whether, you know, whether or not that one, um, plays and I miss a part of it, it just, it sucks me in every time. So, uh, to be fair to the newest Charlie's angels, that's not the case. I saw it one time on a flight and haven't seen it since. So it's kind of still new. We'll see how that lives over the course of time. Yeah, and also to be fair to it, I mean, look, it's a it's a pretty iconic franchise, not only for the show, but and also the, the the latest, you know, the, those two movies. So to go in and try to reboot, I mean, people are going to have pre- preconceived notions about how it should be, and when you completely, uh, you know, or at least change a lot of it, it's going to be really difficult, um, even with new audiences, because even new audiences kind of have a have a flavor of what something's supposed to be like. Yeah, and so I just noticed here uh, the other two actresses in this newest Charlie's Angels. The mm-hmm. reason we couldn't remember them is because I don't know them. <laughs> one of them, one of them is Naomi Scott. Okay, don't don't know her, and the other one is Ella Balinska. Yeah, never heard of them. Never, I don't never, know what else they're in. <laughs> exactly. So don't know either one of them. At least when you got um, Cameron Diaz, Lucy Liu, and uh, Drew Barrymore, you knew all three of them. Exactly. At, at any age, because they have such a body of work. So, yeah, I think they were really uh, I'm looking up Naomi Scott. I guess she was on, you know, she was one of the Disney actresses. Uh, so maybe young, young folks, they thought maybe that they, they could pull it off. But, yeah, besides, I mean, Kristen Stewart's the only big name that people would really remember. Yeah. And, and then the other thing is, too, and this is a reoccurring theme, and it's not necessarily to say something is good or bad. 
Hollywood, they're just so unoriginal. They oh. just basically keep <laughs> rehashing shit that's, I mean, really, you can't come up with anything original. You got to keep rebooting TV shows and, yep. mo- and movies, you know? I mean, come on. Well, that's where TV has creatively just taken over. I mean, I think you're getting the best writers who used to go uh, straight to, to movies. Uh, those screenwriters are going to TV now, and, and that's where the creativity is. And maybe it's just too expensive to make a, a, a film nowadays and get financed that they're trying to go with tried and true efforts. And instead, they're just not having anything in box offices is suffering because I, I'm not going to go to pay that much money for a film when there is so much on television right now and i know whatever movie comes out it's going to be on on uh you know streaming not too long after it's released well and i'll be honest with you um the movies the original movies that i've watched lately either on amazon or netflix Mm -hmm. have been really good Mm, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, really good. Like whether it's a, you know, it just doesn't matter. There have been several movies I've seen on Netflix that are original Netflix movies mm-hmm. where I'm like, damn, that's as good, if not better than anything I've seen in the theater. Right. And because it used to be there would be movies of the week, like TV movies of the week way back when you're like on CBS or ABC. And every now and then you would get a real fun one like Kolchak or even like the original Columbo's were almost like movies of the week. Uh, But then for, you know, some of them would get a bad name, but then you had like the step for wives and things like that. So maybe that's they're going back to that kind of arrow on, on Netflix. So. Yeah, I don't know. We digress, but you mentioned Kolshak, man. Were you a big Night Stalker fan? I, you know, just recently, I always loved Darren McGavin. So I'd always heard about it because my mom loved the X Files. And she's like, if you like, you know, if you like this, you should definitely go back and watch Kolchak. So I rebought. (laughs) It's funny during the quarantine. They're fun. The, The special effects aren't special at all, but they're really fun. I love Night Stalker when I was a kid because, yeah. man, that uh, granted, yeah, if you go back and try and watch it now, it's like watching a freaking black and white talkie. But sure. Uh, but yeah, back then when I was a kid growing up, I freaking love that stuff, man. It was awesome because they always had a great story with the myth and the legend. And yep. it was it was freaking I love that show. Sorry, I digress. No, not at all. But now I know to get you on. I have those two, uh, the, the original two movies uh, on DVD. So we'll, when we get there, you will be on for those. Oh, wow. yeah, that's a, that's a trip. <laughs> I, I, you'll have to send me those just so I can watch them, because I don't know if I'll find those anywhere else. I had to buy them. So, yeah, yeah. yeah they're, but they're if it'd be worth it, just get the, the there was only 18 episodes. So um, of the actual non uh, TV movies one. So you might want to pick those up. You'll have a good time with it. But as always, thank you so much, Stephen. Appreciate it, Brian. Have a good one. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.